0: And Welcome to Reformed Meditations. I'm Lee, and after long last, I am back with another Festivus episode just in time for Festivus. So, uh, happy Festivus to all you crazy people out there. Uh, For those who may have not listened to the last Festivus episode, um, the idea comes from the show Seinfeld, which isn't a show that I necessarily recommend. In fact, Uh, there's going to be two shows I mentioned today that I don't necessarily recommend, but uh, on Seinfeld, George Costanza's very energetic and iconic father comes up with his own holiday called a Festivus for the rest of us, and it, it contains several important elements, but the one element I'm borrowing for this little series is the airing of grievances, which I think is truly at the heart of Festivus. So... I'm here to air a grievance today, and it's a very old grievance, not just for me, but within the history of the Reformation. And that is the issue of transubstantiation, uh, which is a great word for a terrible doctrine. Now, why would I be bringing this up now? Uh, obviously, this is no new issue. This has been a topic of uh, hot debate for centuries. So, what makes it so pertinent to me right now? Well, the reason I bring it up is because I recently viewed part of a show on Netflix that I don't recommend uh, that brought it to mind and, and ruffled my feathers in, a, in an interesting way. The show was called Midnight Mass, and again, I do not recommend it. I didn't even finish it. I got about, I think, maybe halfway through and couldn't take it anymore, So I'm gonna spoil it for you a little bit, um, and I'm sure you won't mind. The series takes place in a small, sleepy little fishing town in the coastal northeast, I believe, and the priest of the Catholic Church in town, which I think is the only church present in this little community, uh, has gone on a trip and was said to be unwell, and so a new guy has come to uh, fill in for him, and uh, some weird stuff starts happening in the town uh, that they're attributing to miracles, uh, some healings occur, um, odd instances, old people start turning young, it's very strange, unsettling, and um, it come to find out the, uh, the youthful priest that comes into town is actually the old priest who's been made young again because of his interaction with a vampire while in Israel. (laughs) So, which, uh, interesting. So anyway, over the course of the show, what actually was happening was, uh, this priest had brought the vampire with him back from the Middle East, and the vampire was having an effect on the town. And how that happened wasn't that the vampire was going around biting people, but that this priest was serving the blood of the vampire to his congregants. And that was plenty gross, okay? And, uh, and that about made me quit the show anyhow. Um, but what really got to me was uh, the lady who worked at the church started to incorporate the vampire, which they referred to as an angel, into Roman Catholic theology, even using some proof texts from Scripture to make it seem normal. And that was the last straw for me. Uh, And so I wanted to jump on, after thinking about this for a little while, and talk a little bit about the problem with transubstantiation that would lead to a kind of uh, idea for a show. Now, this isn't necessarily a knock on the show itself or even a knock on the pagans that made it, The real problem here is the well-known superstitious doctrine of transubstantiation, which is the Roman Catholic doctrine that the priest is able to change the bread and wine involved in the Eucharist into the literal body and blood of Christ, so that every time the Mass is celebrated, Jesus essentially is re-crucified week in and week out. And when people take the Eucharist in the mind of the Roman Catholic, they are consuming the literal body and blood of Christ. So you can see this doctrine uh, would lead to uh, some interesting um, interpretations, let's say, by people who do not subscribe to it, uh, or people who aren't biblically literate, people who haven't meditated on Scripture and seen that this is a, a wildly unbiblical way of considering the lord's supper. So the reason that the show triggered me so much isn't necessarily that it's in a way parodying the roman catholic mass. Ordinarily that would be fine with me. <laughs> I mean, I don't mind. I don't mind making jokes about some of the things that I disagree with, especially if by making the joke I can point out the error. I'm totally fine with that. But the problem here was that the show went further than simply parodying the the superstitious nature of the Roman Catholic Eucharist, but it was the intentional move of the show to attribute uh, these things to passages of Scripture, which were used um, wildly out of context and uh, were simply used as a prop to, uh, to hold up the the plot of the show, so using especially Jesus' words that uh, you know whoever does not eat my body and drink my blood is not a part of me, um, which was used several times in the episodes that I saw. And what really grinds my gears about this is that you know the world doesn't see the difference between Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Protestant. That doesn't really matter to them. They have found in this instance they found a weak point that they could exploit for their purpose in the doctrine of transubstantiation and the overall superstitious and, dare I say, idolatrous nature of so much Roman Catholic doctrine that it turned into a, a reasonable horror plot. Um, this is not good. I don't find this good, um, even though I'm not Roman Catholic, obviously. If you've seen my Twitter at all, you've seen several tweets where I said my personal pronouns are the slash Pope, slash is, slash Antichrist, so I'm putting my cards on the table, very much not a Roman Catholic, but the way that the world does such a thing is they use this bit of doctrine from the Roman Catholic Church to skewer all of Christianity, and that was very much the drift I was getting before I turned the show off, and again, part of the reason why I definitely did not finish it. Uh, Because I like a scary show once in a while, right? Uh, And vampire shows can be pretty interesting. But turning the local church, even if it is a Roman Catholic parish, in this town into a vampire-worshipping cult uh, was beyond the pale for me. So again, as I said at the beginning, this episode isn't a knock on the show, even though I don't recommend you watch it. Um, And it's not necessarily a knock on pagans themselves but uh, I want to talk specifically about the issue of transubstantiation. If solid Christians would speak up on topics like this and make it clear, crystal clear to the listeners that we don't agree on this and that some of us vehemently deny certainly this doctrine and many other well-known Roman Catholic doctrines, Uh, I'm not saying that would solve all the problems, but I think it would help make it clear that We're not all saying the same thing. So this is my attempt, one very small attempt at doing this. So, uh, as I said, I'm putting all my cards on the table here. Very much not a Roman Catholic, very much opposed to Roman Catholicism. Uh, So I want to put forward a more biblical definition of what is pretending to be done in the Roman Catholic Eucharist. So I want to talk about what is the Lord's Supper and I'm going to start with uh, just two scripture references. The first is 1 Corinthians 11, 26 through 28. And by the way, this is in my brand new, gorgeous edition of the Legacy Standard Bible that I'm reading out of. All right. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, 26 through 28. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats... The bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must test himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we see here on a basic level, the scripture is only referring to bread and cup. But in doing so in an unworthy manner, you're guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But Paul, who's writing this, isn't conflating the two. There's the bread and the cup, and then you're sinning against the Lord, and against his body and blood specifically, if you're taking those elements in an unworthy manner. So there's a distinction here between those two things, and the Roman Catholic error is to conflate the two, that when you're taking the bread and the cup, although they used to only give you the bread and not the cup, but that's a separate point. That when you're taking those, you are taking his body and his blood. But that's that's a foreign idea, not only to this passage, but also to the next one that we're going to look at. But another thing that the doctrine of transubstantiation misses, uh, especially from this text, is the purpose. And the purpose... Is in that first verse, in verse 26. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. So we're not raising him from the dead by, to speak frankly, a magic trick of a priest. Christ's body is in heaven right now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We don't need to resurrect as if that were even possible parts of his body, in order for the congregants to eat it and drink of the blood. The whole thing here is that this is a means of grace, that this is an ordinance, or as the Presbyterians would say, a sacrament, ordained by Christ for the church to do in remembrance of him. I'm going to turn to our second passage, and that's Hebrews 9, verses 25, 26, and 28. Actually, I'll start in verse 24 and just read all the way through. For Christ did not enter holy places made with hands, mere copies of the true ones, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy places year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So the Eucharist, in using transubstantiation, violates... This very clear passage because one, as you saw in in verse 28, we're making Jesus return many times. If you see what I mean, that priest making this sacrifice week in and week out, sometimes daily, depending on what the schedule of that particular parish is, there could be a mass every day of the week in which he re sacrifices Christ for people to eat his body, and drink his blood. Well, we're waiting for Jesus to return. We don't need to bring him back up again, like I said before, as if you could, good grief. But Jesus has been offered once for the sins of many. We don't need to redo his offering of himself. He did it once, and that one sacrifice is sufficient for all of his elect in all of history. Verse 25 even undercuts the role of a human priest, because Jesus, being the great high priest, has done what no other priest can do. Namely, he offered a one-time sacrifice, and these earthly priests have to not only make a sacrifice for themselves before they can give the sacrifice for the community, I'm thinking about the Day of Atonement here, but they have to keep doing it. You know, the the Day of Atonement comes every year in the, the Old Testament calendar. Jesus took care of that once for all of time on the cross. Not only in his death, but his resurrection. He doesn't need to be resurrected again. He's already accomplished the work. All that is left now is for the full consummation of what he has paid for. So we're living through that now, and we're waiting for, the consummation of all things. We're waiting for his making all things new at the end of the age. So this passage completely cuts at the foundation of the Roman Catholic necessity to have Jesus re-sacrificed at every Mass. Now, I do want to say that this doesn't mean that my view of this, coming from the Reformed tradition, is necessarily monolithic, in comparison to the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. I'm also thinking about the Lutheran doctrine of consubstantiation, which, although it, it doesn't go as far as transubstantiation to say that the elements are changed, but roughly speaking, that view is that the body and blood of Jesus are in, with, and under the elements. But the elements themselves, the bread and the wine... Uh, or you know for the baptists the bread and the grape juice they're not changed in their substance but they are taken with the body and blood of Jesus in a mysterious way and i think a confessional lutheran would agree with that although i would invite any confessional lutheran who's listening to this if i've misstated that that position i'd love to i'd love to learn what the what the finer points of that position are. But I say all this to say that the Reformed position on the Lord's Supper isn't the only one that disagrees with transubstantiation, and that the miracle at the heart of the Lord's Supper isn't the changing of the elements into something else, but it's what God does in the heart of the believer who is participating in that sacrament, or ordinance, whatever you want to call it. The real spiritual work is the strengthening of the faith of the person receiving the elements of the Lord's Supper, but also its connection with the renewal of the covenant. You know, we talk about the Last Supper as sort of a covenant feast. Um, Jesus even proclaims that this is his blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus makes it loud and clear that even as he's pouring wine at the feast, he's making a connection between wine, which was still wine, he didn't change it into his blood there at that feast, and the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus himself is making a spiritual connection between the cup of wine that he was passing to his disciples around the table and the work of the covenant, namely in the forgiveness of sins. You know, there was nobody at the cross trying to take a cup of Jesus' blood in order to drink it, right? We don't see that in Scripture at all. So regardless of how we view the underlying mystery of God's work in the Lord's Supper, it's plain to see that that mystery is not transubstantiation, the actual changing of the elements into the body and blood of Jesus, regardless of whether you come down in the Reformed view that I described, in the consubstantial view of the Lutherans, or even the Zwinglian view, which is a mere memorial, that nothing else is happening in the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper other than simply a reminder of what Jesus did on the cross. Now, that's that's a view I oppose as well, but for completely different reasons than why I oppose transubstantiation. Because at its core, the doctrine of transubstantiation is superstitious and idolatrous. It takes a commandment of Christ, the institution of the Lord's Supper, and turns it into an idol. That idolatry even comes down to the way that they store the bread, or what they call the host. Uh, There have been times where people literally worshipped the bread which is just beyond me. And also the reason that if you have attended a Roman Catholic Mass, you'll see the once the, the chalice has been passed to all those who are taking communion, the priest literally has to drink the rest of it, because you can't waste the blood of Christ, right? So then whatever is left, the priest has to drink that, rinse the chalice, drink the rinse water and that might happen two or even three times so that there's not a drop of wine or excuse me the blood of Christ left in the chalice so you can see there at least they're consistent with the the idolatry and superstition of that doctrine but again it's uh it's an abominable idea and actually to drive that point home I'm going to turn to the 1689 chapter 30, which is specifically about the Lord's Supper, because the the wording in this, I think, really drives the point home. Uh, This is chapter 30, paragraphs 2, 5, and 6. In this ordinance, Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor is any real sacrifice made at all for the remission of sin of the living or the dead. It is only a memorial of the one offering Christ made of himself on the cross once for all. It is also a spiritual offering of the highest possible praise to God for that sacrifice. Thus, the Roman Catholic sacrifice of the Mass, as they call it, is utterly detestable and detracts from Christ's own sacrifice, which is the only propitiation for all the sins of the elect. uh, Paragraph 5. The outward elements in this ordinance, properly set apart for the use ordained by Christ, like okay, so that's a that's a good point to be made. These are set apart. We're not just grabbing a loaf of bread off of the shelf at the grocery store and ripping it up into pieces. Uh, at the moment, you know that there there's preparation involved here. It's not a spur of the moment thing. These these are elements that have been set aside for this use specifically. Okay, back to the wording. Um, properly set apart for the use ordained by Christ have such a relationship to Christ, crucified, that they are sometimes called, truly though figuratively, by the names of the things they represent, that is, the body and blood of Christ. So, in this view, this is this is the Reformed view, these elements, even though they are bread and wine, or bread and grape juice, you know, that that's permissible, even though they are not literally changed into the body and blood of Christ, they are so closely related to the body and blood of Christ, that we sometimes do use those words to signify the ordinary elements. So I think that's that's a nice distinction to be made. Even though we might use the words body and blood of Christ to refer to the elements, we are not in any way saying that they are actually those things in an ontological sense, meaning of their substance. However, in substance and nature, they still remain truly and only bread and wine as they were before. So they're set aside for a purpose. They're not changed in their substance. And then paragraph six, and this one really brings it home. The doctrine commonly called transubstantiation teaches that the substance of bread and wine is changed into the substance of Christ's body and blood by the consecration of a priest, or some other way. This doctrine is hostile, not only to Scripture, but also to common sense and reason. That's really something, too. And I think this is where the ability for the world to mock all of Christianity through this doctrine comes. Because the world, obviously, is ignorant of Scripture in so many ways, but God's common grace operates on the believers and unbelievers the same. So they still have use of common sense and basic scientific understandings of how the world works. Nothing is completely changed into something else and looks unchanged. It's it's ridiculous. Like it says, it's hostile to common sense and to reason. And common sense and reason are gifts from God. These aren't just things that happen. You know, God has delivered common grace and, He's created a world that is rational, that operates under constants, that we can observe and document. This is something that does not happen that way. Back to the confession. It destroys the nature of the ordinance and has been and is the cause of many kinds of superstitions and gross idolatries. I would even even comment as well that it's the source of many blasphemies against God's truth. Uh, and used as a point of mockery against God's people. That is my grievance, and it probably won't do anything to change anything, but boy does it feel good to say it. <laughs> and in the spirit of Festivus, I'm uh, airing it to to you, my dear listeners. So I hope this has been interesting and maybe even helpful. Uh, if this maybe is a, a topic you haven't waded into before or considered very much, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Meditations. That's at R-E-F Meditations on Twitter. You can also email me directly at reformedmeditations at gmail.com. You can also find the page on Facebook and leave a comment or a question. I would positively love to hear from you. So if you check the show notes, all of those contact points are there. While you're in the show notes, you really should check out the Bar Network. Reformed Meditations is happily a Bar Network podcast, uh, truly a group of remarkable and incredible people who are passionate about the gospel and communicating it clearly and compellingly through the medium of podcasts. So please click on that link and go subscribe. Uh, You will thank me later. Uh, And also uh, follow the link in the show notes to the Exile House of Meme Lords, and go like their pages. I've told people this before. I think I've even said it here, but I will say it again. The Reformation will be memed, and it is being memed and will continue to be memed. That is a solemn promise. All right, thank you again for listening. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace, and I hope that you all have a very Merry Christmas.